when NASA and I moved here 14 years ago, we're talking about the helmet of salvation. When NASA and I moved here 14 years ago, uh, we, we, um, our kids were quite young, Zeke and Ella were quite young, and we were quite happy for them to be naked on the beach. That, that wasn't really a problem in California where we moved from. That was quite a normal thing. Uh, but it wasn't that welcomed over here in Australia. And uh, quite quickly, we started to learn, and I cannot tell you how this happened, because Australia has this way of doing it. No one ever comes, like, tells you to your face that you're doing something wrong, but somehow you find out that you're doing something wrong, and you just know it. It's, this is like kind of... So we, we, we learned that we had to do the right thing, and then we learned that we had to slip, slop, slap. Um, and we had to work that out, because no one explained to us what this meet, meant. And it was left to our own logic. So <coughs> it wasn't too hard to find out, figure out. First of all, we thought slip, slop, slap made sense. Slip, slop. I grew up calling flip-flops slip-slops. I'll show you if you can. There's a picture of slip-slops on the screen shortly. So those are slip-slops or flip-flops or thongs. Unless you're in Brazil, then that's not a thong. There's a different kind of a thong. But these can be all of those things. So slip-slop was, in my mind, your kids need to be wearing shoes, which kind of made sense on the beach because it's hot. And then slap, while it seemed stupid, meant obviously put on some sunscreen. Uh, although it was like, you know, you, you could just gently massage it in. You don't have to do it in a violent way. Um, so this made sense. It was In my mind, it was like, okay, so our kids need to wear um, shoes and sunscreen at the beach. That makes sense. And then they started adding some, which was like seek and uh, slide. Seek and slide. Don't, this is my sermon, not yours. Um, <laughs> and seek made sense as well. It's like, that could be quite fun. Uh, see, is this from you or my wife? There we go. Interesting. <laughs> uh, seek was like, okay, I'm happy to do that. We're at the beach, fun times. Who's hiding? Where are they? And let's play. And slide made sense because we often used to go to Hillary's and there was a slide. Uh, so this is what it made sense. You know, all of this made sense. The next picture, please, Joel. If it, this is what it was. Slip, slop, slap, seek, slide. Great. Sounds like you wear shoes, put on sunblock, and have fun at the beach. And then cancer can't get to you. Um, which made sense. That was wrong. Anyone who grew up in Australia knows how wrong this is. But let me just be clear that unless you grow up in Australia, these things aren't well explained. They stopped being explained around about sometime in the 80s, early 90s. Here's a video to show you why all Australians know what I'm talking about. So... Uh, obviously, it wasn't what I thought it was, and naked kids running around on the beach were definitely not slipping, slopping, or slapping. Um, and so, you know, th this is what you know. You, you slip on a shirt, to be clear. You slop on sunscreen, and you slap on a hat. And, and shade, slide, there you go. So, uh, this is... A known thing, and most Australians and ourselves now being here 14 years, we count ourselves as good Australians, uh, have hats everywhere they go. Yeah, and I've got friends who have hats at the front door, so that whenever they leave, they just grab it. Friends have got hats in the car, so whenever they need, they can just grab it. But there will there'd hardly be a person in this room who doesn't have a hat because you live in Western Australia. You probably have multiple hats. It comes down to, do you know which is the right hat for the right occasion? Fortunately, we're in Perth, so no one's judging too harshly, unless you're in the peanut gallery, 
and then you will be judged. Um, the Roman soldiers would never leave without their hats either. Uh, Paul gets towards the end of the armor because you have to first get it all on, and he's thinking about leaving and going to battle. And he says to take up the helmet of salvation. You need, to, you need to wear this helmet. Why? Because you can get mortally wounded in combat if you aren't wearing your helmet, if you aren't wearing your hat. It's far more dangerous than the sun in WA is being a Roman soldier going to, into battle without your hat. And the Roman soldiers had this hat that not only uh, protected them from mortal danger, it was intended to also put uh, mortal fear into their opponents because they were these ginormous feathered hats as well. Um, and I'm not too much of a historian to know, you know, which hats they wore ceremonially, which hats they wore in battle. But if you go look at the pictures that were taken at the time, obviously there weren't any. Um, they're in battle with, ha- with furry feathers on these uh, hats to protect them. And you can imagine hearing the ground shaking as the Roman soldiers come towards you. You can imagine seeing these glistening, this glistening armor and these like boxed-in shields that you, that, that you can't break into, and you can imagine seeing, the, you know, just on the crest of the hill, the feathers before almost anything else, the flags and the feathers, and the fear it would put in. Paul looks at this, this helmet of a Roman soldier that he's probably tied to and says, we need to put on our helmet of salvation. There's something that uh, stops us from being mortally wounded too, and we need to put it on. <coughs> so this morning, <coughs> I want to read... I want to look at three things, something borrowed, um, something borrowed that does something inside of you, these points are, are uh, there we go, that we can then, we'll road test it um, this morning. Those are the three things that I want to do. So firstly, something borrowed. Um, Paul borrows this analogy, he's, he's probably tied to a Roman soldier, and he uses this analogy throughout his writings, but um, he's definitely thinking about Isaiah in writing this, and he's connecting it, but it still makes sense, you know, he's not bringing it across because the Roman soldier is so interesting to him, he's bringing it across because it's in the Word of God, and it's still relevant because all the people see Roman soldiers, so he goes, okay, let's take the language of Isaiah 59, 17, where it talks about Jesus, and then let's bring it into today's language that makes sense, so today he might not use the same analogy if Paul were, were preaching today, he might find a different one, uh, but he would still be using Isaiah 59, 17. And this, this is what Isaiah 59 <coughs> talks about, which means that we're a far cry from de- uh, fair dealing. We're, we're not even close to right living. We long for light, but sink into darkness, long for brightness, but stumble through the night. Like the blind, we inch along a wall, groping eyeless in the dark. We shuffle our way in broad daylight like the dead but somehow walking. We're no better off than bears groaning, and no worse off than doves moaning. We look for justice, not a sign of it, for salvation, not so much as a hint. Our wrongdoings pile up before you, God. Our sins stand up and accuse us. Our wrongdoings stare us down. We know in detail what we've done, mocking and denying God and not following our God, spreading false rumors, whipping up revolts, pregnant with lies, muttering malice, Justice is beaten back. Righteousness is banished to the sidelines. Truth staggers down the street. Honesty is nowhere to be found. Good is missing in action. Anyone renouncing evil is beaten and robbed. 
God looked and saw evil looming on the horizon, so much evil and no sign of justice. He couldn't believe what he saw, not a soul around to correct this awful situation. So he did it himself. He took on the work of salvation, fueled by his own righteousness. He dressed in righteousness, put it on like a suit of armor, with salvation on his head like a helmet. Put on judgment like an overcoat and threw a cloak of passion around his shoulders. He'll make everyone pay for what they've done, fury for his foes, just deserts for his enemies. Even the far-off islands will get paid off in full. In the west, they'll fear the name of God. In the east, they'll fear the glory of God. For he'll arrive like a river in flood stage, whipped to a torrent by the wind of God. I'll arrive in Zion as Redeemer to those in Jacob who leave their sins. God's decree. So Isaiah is speaking of a time when God himself will come in righteousness to bring salvation for all who are oppressed in sin. Speaking of a time where Jesus will come, but he's speaking before Jesus will come. Otherwise, he would have just spoken about Jesus, which is what Paul does. So he comes in his righteousness and he brings salvation to all who turns to him. And we find out then when, but you know, that happens and then Paul comes post-Jesus and starts applying the gospel to the church and Jesus is our great victor. Jesus is the one who Isaiah has prophesied. And so we all get this great news to know Jesus as the victor, to know his righteousness and his salvation, not just to hope for righteousness and salvation that's to come. So where is this battle that Jesus fights, that Isaiah talks about? It becomes heated in the wilderness. Jesus gets led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, and Satan comes and tries to form an alliance with Jesus by offering him every single thing he could possibly want. You go read, go read what uh, Satan comes to him. It's recorded three times, maybe more. Who knows how many times it happened, but three times are recorded. And each time is a specific um, offering of precisely what Jesus is longing for or wants to achieve. And Satan's offering him an easy way out, an easy way through. Form an alliance with me. And Jesus pushes back because he won't make an alliance with evil. He won't make an alliance with an enemy because he's come to save the world. And to make an alliance with, uh, with the enemy means he cannot save the world. And so Jesus begins to push back against darkness. And every single day, he gets up again and fights again against evil and oppression. He comes and he uh, announces, proclaims, the kingdom of God has come. He heals the sick. He binds up the broken. He heals the blind. And these are all signs and messages that the kingdom of God has come. Something has changed. All the oppression is over. Where sin has had victories, we are going to undo those. Righteousness is going to be victorious. Where death is your destiny, life will be your destiny. And Jesus, every single day, gets up and pushes in battle against the enemy. And you can imagine, you know, in Acts, there's this great verse, and I bring it up quite a bit because it's just so interesting to me, where someone's trying to, like, uh, show off some spiritual strength, uh, which they don't have, and the demons talk to them and go, you know, Jesus we know, Paul we've heard of, you, who are you? Never heard of you. No one speaks about you in our meetings. In the board meetings, the strategy meetings, the war room meetings, how are we going to stand against God and His people? No one has ever mentioned your name. You are not our problem, as you are. 
and most of us probably, uh, you know, are a little bit like that. Few of us ever rise probably to the uh, attention of Paul we've heard of, <laughs> you know. But Jesus we know. Jesus is the one we are all moved against. All the power of darkness and evil. Can you imagine, not your worst day, but can you imagine the entire world has a break from facing darkness because all of darkness is focused on you. All evil, as, as uh, the gospel begins to unfold, as Jesus beca- becomes revealed, attention grows, Jesus pushes back darkness and he goes to the cross and he, sta- he, he gets crucified, uh, he faces murderous rage, he, he faces spitting insults, the enemy thinks he, it's, he's winning, darkness presses against Jesus, Jesus is, uh, the Father, you know, Father, why have you forsaken me? The Father has to turn from Jesus, and Jesus dies. He has to go into death. The creator of life has to enter finality. It's impossible for our minds to understand how, how that, what that even means. But it's just given. It's given so that children can know it. And yet the wisest of the wise can never truly comprehend what it means that the creator of all things stepped into our world, went to the cross, and faced death in our place. The writer of Hebrews says, although he was son, he learned obedience by what he suffered. Jesus' obedience wasn't tidy your room, obey your parents. Jesus was obedient to death. The writer of Hebrews says, then he was raised to immortal life, king of kings, victor over sin and death, Raised in glistening righteousness, he had power over evil. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. When we put on this, the helmet of salvation, we are putting on borrowed armor. We are putting on armor that has been worn in battle and has won battle and has been raised to life in victory. We are putting on the armor of the greatest fighter in the history of the world. We are not putting on borrowed armor from some soldier that was buried and they couldn't find him, but they have the helmet and we all get to share it. They put, we're putting on Jesus' helmet of salvation, which will never see death again. Don't be fooled. We are not the, the uh, warts of King Arthur's tale. You know, those who are worthy can grab the sword and pull it, out of, pull it out of the stone and you will be king. Who are the princes and princesses of heaven? Those who are counted worthy, their lives are so worthy that they somehow magically are able to raise righteousness out of the stone of death. No. The gospel says those, only those who are not worthy can be raised to life. 
through salvation in Jesus. Only those who are unrighteous, only those who are sinners, only those who are broken and in need of healing, only those who are desperate and hungry and lost and lonely, only those who stand against God can turn to God and say, help. If you stand in your own righteousness, He cannot help you. If you save in yourself, He can't save you. But if you're drowning, He's got you. If you're being crushed, He can save you. If you say, I'm unworthy, you're great. That's exactly who He came for. It's, the righteous, it's His righteousness and it's His salvation yesterday, today, and tomorrow. What saved me yesterday was His righteousness and His salvation. What saves me today is His righteousness and His salvation. What saves me tomorrow is His righteousness and His salvation. And what will see me through to eternity is His righteousness and His salvation, as Jib uh, read in worship, because He is the author and finisher, perfecter of my faith. He started it. He will finish it. This is borrowed armor. You're invited, you're told, sorry, not invited as in, you know, if you feel up to it, go for it. You're told by Paul, put on the armor of God. It's there. He, you don't have to go ask for it. He's, Here it is. Take on His salvation and wear it upon your head. Let no mortal wound come to you. This is supposed to do something to us. When we put it on, it's supposed to do something to, to, to us. It's not uh, supposed to just be cognitive. It's not, uh, Christianity is, is not an academic exercise. It's not a religion. You're not going to go to heaven and have to pass an ATAR test to get in. Putting on the helmet of salvation is supposed to do something inside of us. In the 1980s, uh, besides this ad being popular, the movie Rambo was also popular. And uh, <laughs> that's, you know, it's when boys became men. And Rambo made popular a survival knife. Uh, pop and so on the, on the markets for all young boys to get was a survival knife. And I got mine in, in the early 90s, Christmas, early 90s. We were on holiday, staying in a cabin uh, inside the Cape Town uh, Mountains, Hout Bay, in this beautiful cabin inside this forest. And um, Christmas, I got my survival knife. I, too, was Rambo. It's very skinny, white, 12-year-old or something like that, 11, 10-year-old, young. And I remember black blade, black handle, compass on the back. Do you remember that? Uh, no one told you how to use it, but there was a compass on the back. You could unscrew the compass, and inside there were survival matches, uh, I think a, a hook and some, some uh, uh, fishing line. Thanks, Josh. It's a technical term. I couldn't quite get there. I appreciate that. Um, I've never met anyone who's caught anything with the fishing line, but uh, alas, there it is, and we could all survive. In, in our, and I was walking around. My parents were taking a nap. Now that I'm older, I, I question what they were actually doing, but they were, I, was told, I was told they were taking a nap, and... Um, I was walking around outside, and I, I was Rambo. 
I was this dangerous, and I, honestly, I was, I was looking for trouble. I was hoping something <laughs> would come my way. Uh, and I was walking through the forest, so it was, a fair, it was fair that something might, uh, and I was ready. And then as I, I got closer to the house, there was this veranda, um, and there was this like, kind of vine growing. It was beautiful. And I, I, I ducked to kind of go under the vine to head back inside, and the vine moved. And I stood back, uh, kind of noticing this, and, and I, the vine gained my focus, and it was a green snake. But I had my survival knife. <laughs> so, what it did is absolutely nothing. I ran inside screaming, waking my parents up, and calling for my dad to come and save me to come and rescue me. It was embarrassing because when we came, I think the snake, I don't think snakes hear things, but I think I screamed loud enough for the snake to feel the vibrations. It had slithered away. There was no evidence, and here I had to explain to my dad while I held my survival knife while I had screamed like uh, a little girl and called for his help. Um, I convinced him that it was a, a boomslung, and boomslungs can kill you, so it was the wise thing to do uh, to go and call your dad. Um, Jesus' salvation is meant to do something real to us, not pretend. There's, there's too much uh, bravado. There's too much Christian bravado. There's too much Christian, you know, intellectual, we're saved, blah, 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 and we, we are like this, this uh, hyper-confidence and arrogance, but not, no changed hearts. Uh, uh, Will sent this beautiful thing this week of uh, what does humble courage really look like? When you truly know what you, that you're saved by Jesus and you really know what it costs him, it doesn't come with bravado. There's this, you know, it cost Jesus his life. He had to die because we really are sinners. But he really did die for us because we really are loved sinners. And so we get a confidence and an assurance of our salvation, but we don't get an arrogance and bravado. We don't think of ourselves as superior to anyone. We're just grateful and thankful, and everyone's welcome to join the party. And so there's this kind of gentleness and peaceableness that should uh, mark the lives of Christians because of the cost of the cross, the realness of the cross, and the love of the cross that we've received, the helmet of salvation should genuinely do something to us deeply. Paul says, though, he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, he calls it something else. He's talking about the uh, helmet again. And over here in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, he calls it the hope of salvation. This is what it's supposed to do to you. When you put on the helmet of salvation, when you wear it, when you know it's yours, when you know you can borrow it, when you know no mortal wound can come to me, because I'm not wearing my helmet of salvation, I'm wearing Christ's helmet of salvation, and He already has victory over all His enemies. Therefore, as I sit in His helmet of salvation, I have victory over all His enemies, which are all my enemies. I cannot be mortally wounded. Paul says, you have a hope of salvation. And that's supposed to do something deep inside of you. I'll play it out with you just a little bit. If I could choose to live in any home, anywhere, I would choose a shack on the beach. Not a shack by the beach. I would choose a shack on the beach. A little stilts, paint chipped off, just creaky doors, all of that stuff. That would be my dream home. Uh, I would love that. And I'm not sure what heaven's going to be like. I doubt that in this life I'll have, ever have that because God has called us to live in Perth and you're not allowed to build shacks on the beach in Perth. Boring. Um, so it's unlikely to ever happen. But every now and then I go, I don't know what heaven's going to be like. I don't think there's going to be mansions, but I am going to have to live somewhere. And there is a chance that if that's what God wants for me, 
I'll, I'll have eternally a shack on the beach. That'd be absolutely amazing. And if that's not what God has for me, it's going to be better than that. But that's the best I can imagine. So it's going to be the joy that I feel imagining that, but better. Oh, well, I don't really care if I get in this life. It'll still be nice because I know I'm going to get that or better in, in eternity with God. And you, you see what, what hope produces is a contentment in whatever your current situation is. So, so therefore, I'm, well, if I have to live in an apartment with my four kids and oh, if they get married and bring their grandkids into the house, uh, it is going to squeeze us out. But if that's where God has us, that's where God has us. It's okay. So hope, hope brings kind of a settledness. Um, but what is hope? Biblically, hope is the expectation of something good that is guaranteed. So hope is not wishful thinking. In our culture, hope is wishful, thinkful, wishful thinking. What do you hope to get for Christmas? What are you wishing for Christmas? Synonym of the same, right? The, it's not, what do you hope to get from Jesus? That's not, you, you, you're shifting into the realm of fantasy. Who cares what you hope to get from Jesus? Jesus has already told you what to hope for. Because he's already told you, he's already promised. You are going to get eternal life if your faith is in Jesus. You are going to get healing. You are going to get no sorrow. You are going to get no sadness. You are going to get fullness of joy. You are going to get fullness of satisfaction and longing. You are going to get the presence of God. That's what we hope for. He's already told us. Mostly, to be, our hope will be mostly satisfied in its fulfillment of being in the presence of God. And, and it, so, biblically, hope is uh, the expectation of a good thing that's guaranteed. Not, you're not hoping for it. You, I mean, you're not wishing for it. You're guaranteed it because God is faithful. Not because He's got a naughty and nice list, but because God is faithful. If you want to use the naughty and li- nice list, fine. Let's go there. But you stand in Jesus, and Jesus is nice, so you're going to get it anyway. Guaranteed. What God has promised, you get, because He is faithful. Wishful thinking? Not so much. Listen to how the Bible talks about hope. (coughs) I've compiled a few verses together and just strung them together in kind of a, I think, kind of a logical, chronological way. There was a time when hope was far from us. Our lives were distant and devoid of any hope and any real reason for hope. However, by the great redemptive grace of God, we were justified through faith in Jesus. We now have peace with God. This means that a great eternal hope was brought very near. We have every reason to rejoice. We will live in all the glory of God, His perfections and His beauty made known to us. God made this all possible through the resurrection of Jesus. God spiritually rebirths us into a life of living hope. God doesn't only want to give us a glimmer of hope, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, God wants to cause our lives to abound in hope in every and all situations and circumstances. As eternal hope abounds in our lives, one of the things we hope for is for God's promised righteousness. This righteousness is part of the hope God has given us, something not even the law could actually help us achieve. And so we live in this broken world, in these broken bodies, yet growing in hope, empowered to actually do some good already. We live hope-filled lives as we wait for the greatest manifestation of our hope when our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, appears in all His glory, His perfections, and His beauty. 
And in the moment, and in that moment, we will realize that we too are heirs of all that is His, and our hope of eternal life has more fully begun. And so day by day, our lives are anchored by hope so great that all the trials and temptations pale in significance compared to the greatness of His promise to us. We hope not in vain, but our hope is itself anchored in His faithfulness. He will do all He said He will do. The helmet of salvation is meant to put great hope into our bones, into every single breath, into our thoughts, into our feelings, into all circumstances, because we face very many reasons to need hope. And the reason we can is not because we're delusional, but because God is faithful and He will do what He said He will do. Even when it looks like it can't be possible, God will still do what He said He will do. The God who created the world and the God who raises the dead is the God who you're trusting to be faithful to His promise. So what does it look like when we road test it? We put on the helmet of salvation, hope fills our lives. Let's road test it just a little bit and then we'll take communion. I'm going to read some of this because I, I want to land it well. <coughs> so excuse me. <coughs> what about when you fail or lie or swear or harbor unforgiveness longer than you should or fall into temptation or doubt that God is loving or wise or able to do His will? What about when you aren't the friend you believe you should be? What about when you offend someone or you are offended? What about when you cause great pain or you're the reason a relationship ends? What about when you're in a relationship that ends and there's nothing you can do to save it? What about when you lose all your family, uh, or sorry, all your family has in a bad investment? What about if you can't ever be good enough for that promotion or for that person you would love to marry? What about when you want a family but you can't find love? Well, God does bless you with a spouse, but you can't get pregnant. What if you fight same-sex attraction for the rest of your life? Or against some other sort of lust for the rest of your life? What about if you ever reach your potential? What about if you never change the way you know uh, you promise to every single year? What if you didn't read your Bible and pray every day like you knew you should? What if you continue to want things you don't need? What if you remain loveless and you're the resounding gong and the clanging cymbal that Paul talks about, making a lot of noise but not really helping anyone? What if that's you? What if that's me? What, what, does, the hel- what does the helmet of salvation, what does the hope in Jesus do for us? Jesus' victory is already complete. Jesus has already uh, one and risen over sin and death. Jesus has already been seated in glory. Jesus has already pushed back the darkness. Jesus has already broken every chain that we could be enslaved to. Jesus has already overcome sin. Jesus has already walked in perfect obedience. Jesus has already paid the wages of sin and put an end to death. Jesus' victories don't only end there. Those are theological truths. But the theological application is that Jesus' victories continue every single day wherever you find believers 
everywhere in the world. They echo in your life. They echo in my life. This is why Jesus gives us communion. This is a symbol of his victorious salvation. We put it on, his helmet of salvation. We take it on, we put it on, we take it in. It's a picture of Jesus having new victories in believers' lives. Come to me. Do this in remembrance of me. If you have aught against one another, uh, mend that, fix that. We come to Jesus. We put on his helmet of salvation again and again and again and again. The darkness is pushed back. We are reminded again and again that he has broken every chain. The things that we have lost hope for again and again, we come to Jesus and we find that in Jesus alone we have hope for them. Hope for Him. Hope for God to work. Hope for God to breathe life where there is only death. Hope to move upon our hearts and others' hearts. Hope to change us. Hope to strengthen us against the wrestle of sin. Hope to make us more Christ-like where we lack it. Hope to give us wisdom for leading our families. Hope to give us gentleness. Hope to give us faith and trust. And so we come to him again and again. And Jesus' big victories now have small victories in our lives over our affections, over our thoughts over our relationships, over our failures, over our temptations, over our trials, over our sufferings, over our losses. The battleground for Jesus, he's won, but the battleground continues in your and my life every day. The helmet of salvation, put it on. Let his victory ring out. We take communion to remind ourselves of the end and remind ourselves that a call that Jesus wins that Jesus has uh, a name that is above all names that Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that Jesus is seated in glory to remind ourselves that we are in him and whatever battle we are fighting we put on the helmet of salvation to remind us how it ends he wins how weak do you feel how backwards have you fallen how scuffed are your knees? Put on the helmet of salvation. Let him pick you up. Let him strengthen you. Abraham Lincoln famously said, uh, he was the, um, sorry, just to give you a context, he was an American president that was famous for the abolition of slavery, whether it's to his credit or not. That's how he's remembered. That was the context of his presidency. And in that context, he said this, free labor has the inspiration of hope. Slave labor has no hope. Free labor has the inspiration of hope. Slave labor has no hope. When Jesus saves us, he saves us from slavery. He saves us from oppression. He saves us from a master we cannot serve, we cannot satisfy. He saves us to make us children of God, to make us a free people for freedom's sake. Christ has set us free. So yes, we labor on for Christ. 
Yes, we make every effort to move to obedience. Yes, we want to glorify God with every bit of our lives. Yes, we want to see good works, great works in our lives that God has prepared for us to do. Because free labor has hope as its inspiration. Why? Because we know where we're going. I know who I'm serving. This is what I want to do. What would you rather be doing, free person? Who would you rather be glorifying, free person? Who would you rather labor for, free person? Even you are a horrible master compared to God, your Savior. Even you are hard to satisfy compared to God, your lover. Even you are hard to please compared to God who is pleased in you. Even you don't know what's best compared to God who has planned good things in advance for those who love and seek to do His work. There is no one better to serve. There is no one better to lay your life down to. There's no one better to say, God, how do you want to use my finances, my time, my business, everything that you have given me, it's all yours anyway, but thank you for giving me the opportunity to lay it down before you. My hope is in you. I I desire and seek to glorify you. Teach me how to uh, serve you, obey you, and walk in your ways. Because we wear the helmet of salvation, because His hope is living in our hearts. We can be enabled by the Holy Spirit to strive for His glory in this life.